Hello, hello everyone. This is Dr. Eeks. Some of you call me Aaron, and welcome to another episode of Causes or Cures. I am so glad you are joining in today. And uh, hey, I hope you stick around. I hope you subscribe. I hope you share this episode. This is a great episode. It's, it's on a really interesting topic. Um, but first, some updates. But first, how are you? Are you doing okay? I hope so. How am I? Thanks for asking. I'm okay. I, I can't complain. I've been busy working on a couple public health initiatives. Um, they're all at the federal level, some more tedious than the others. Um, I've been writing a lot in my blog at bloomingwellness.com. It's where I put my health musings, my public health musings. Um, I also put up some videos there, well, on YouTube. You, you can connect to them through my website. You can also subscribe to my newsletter. Um, I've been writing a fictional novel. No idea if it'll see the light of day, but it's it's a medical detective slash bizarre romance story. Um, I know, me writing romance, and, and if you know me, you're laughing right now. I'm, I'm laughing with you. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. But, I, you know, I need, I just, I need some honest people to read it and tell me what they think about it. You know, you can't, you can't just have those people who are going to blow smoke up you know where and review your stuff. You need people who are real friends, meaning they're going to tell you the truth. Like, oh, Aaron, no, do not put that out there. Um, but they also tell you the good stuff too, right? <laughs> um, what else is new? Okay, so we're dealing with a new variant that just came out this week. Uh, you know, guys, we just have to wait and see. Everyone's like opining on this and offering their expert opinions here, there, and everywhere. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just tell the public we don't know. Sometimes that's the best answer. Um, and admitting uncertainty, the extent of uncertainty, in no way, shape, or form undermines expertise. But sometimes it's the best, most honest answer that you can give the public, you know, to avoid the backlash. Um, which sometimes those absolute answers can cause because people are like, oh, okay, well, this person said it was going to be okay. And now look what happened, right? Um, just some health communications tips there. I'll go into that in a later podcast, but let's get into the meat of this podcast because this is a really interesting topic. Today, my guest is Dr. Suresh Kuchipudi, who recently published a study in which they identified SARS-CoV-2 or essentially COVID-19, COVID, uh, in free living and domestic white-tailed deer. And they did this study right here in the US. Why is this interesting? This is interesting because it's yet another element of this pandemic. And it's one that we're not really talking about so much today because we're focused on vaccines and human to human transmission. But what happens when there are more hosts than just us humans? Meaning, what happens when the virus spills over to other animals like the deer? Can it survive in them? Can they transmit it? Do they have symptoms? Do they give it back to us? Can the virus mutate, right? This is, this is an interesting element. This is really interesting, guys. And it makes you think about our current strategies to mitigate, control the pandemic, and how we may have to tweak them if there's you know, more than one host involved, right? Now, I will let Dr. Kuchipudi introduce himself, but the Cliff Notes version is that he is a professor of veterinary and biomedical sciences at Penn State's College of Agricultural Sciences, and he is the Huck Chair in Emerging Infectious Diseases, which is a really cool and prestigious position. 
All right, guys, let's connect to Dr. Kuchipudi and hear what he has to say. Okay, let's 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 just start. So, Dr. Kuchipudi, you and your team wrote a paper, a preprint, I believe, titled "Multiple Spillovers and Onward Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in Free Living." and captive white-tailed deer. And we're going to talk about that because it, I think it's really interesting in terms of what it means for the pandemic. But first, do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, certainly. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, and my name is uh, Suresh Kuchipuri. I'm a professor of virology at the Pennsylvania State University. My background is I'm a veterinary clinician by training. Um, and I got a PhD in, in virology, um, and I'm a board certified um, uh, specialist in, in, in veterinary microbiology and immunology. And my research interest is to study emerging and zoonotic viruses, uh, those that have um, uh, implications to both animal and human health. And uh, in particular, uh, we focus on RNA viruses. Um, and before COVID um, pandemic um, erupted, we were studying influenza virus and Zika virus and other such RNA viruses of high consequence. And since the onset of the pandemic, based on our uh, interest and, and expertise, we started investigating multiple aspects of um, the SARS coronavirus too, um, in, that included development of next generation vaccines, novel and innovative um, diagnostic tools, and the other uh, major area of our research focus was to investigate the susceptibility um, of uh, different animal species to SARS coronavirus too. Awesome. Okay, so I, I'm trying to I'm going to try to uh, phrase this in easy easy to understand terms, just just because not not all of my listeners have um, a, a good scientific background. But basically, from your study, what I gathered is that you and your team you looked at samples from lymph nodes in both captive and free free living white-tailed deer from April of 2020 to January of 2021 in Iowa. Um, and so you were essentially looking for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 RNA or you know, genetic material to show that it was, it was present. Um, is that correct? And what did you find? Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, so the reason we um, uh, we uh, look at we looked at um, the the lymph nodes, the retropharyngeal lymph nodes uh, that are found on the on the neck of uh, the deer, uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, these are the the glands that are collected by the wildlife and game commission uh, type uh, agencies to monitor for uh, chronic wasting disease um, in deer. So these samples are already collected for a different purpose. And some of them uh, are also stored. And that's what happened in Iowa. They happen to have stored these tissues from last year. And the second reason is that um, a study conducted by USDA, uh, which have done experimental uh, in infection studies of uh, white-tailed deer with SARS coronavirus too. Uh, in a high containment laboratory setting, of course. Um, so what they found is that when you infect the deer, um, they shed the virus for a brief period of time between three to five days, but the virus can be found, or the viral nucleic acid can be found in the uh, retropharyngeal lymph nodes for up to 21 days. 
So therefore, um, we thought this is a, a great opportunity uh, because these samples are already collected for a ongoing disease surveillance program. And if the animals were to be infected, we have a high chance of detecting the viral genetic material in those samples. So when we tested them for detection of SARS coronavirus to a nucleic acid using a method called RT-PCR, we found a lot of those samples to have um, a very high level of uh, the viral nucleic acid, which would be a confirmation that these animals were um, indeed infected by the SARS coronavirus too. Okay. And, and, and what percentage did you find this in, in the deer that you studied? For the entire study period, as you mentioned, from April 2020 through January of 2021, the total um, positivity rate was over 30%, around 33% of the samples were positive. Hmm. Um, but if you focus specifically on some of those months, uh, November, December, uh, in those months, the, the positivity rate among the samples tested was over 80%, which is incredibly high. Wow. Wow. Now, why? What? What are? Are there some theories on why that was? There, there could be a number of uh, reasons um, why uh, this may have happened, um, and one of them is that was the time uh, where there is the the peak of human infections in Iowa. It simply coincided with the peak human infections in Iowa in November, December, 2020. So there's naturally a lot of infected people and, and um, a, um, a lot of virus in the environment and chances of exposure is high. And the other reason is that um, it also coincides with the, the peak hunting season um, where hunting, we know, um, disrupts the movement of deer. So they probably are moving in, in directions that they don't normally do that would have um, made the the opportunities of infections much higher. And the third reason is that uh, that is also the time of the year when things are uh, getting fairly cold and deer probably are not getting uh, enough food that they can find. So they probably are looking for anything that they could possibly eat. So we think that all of these aspects probably uh, collectively contributed for this uh, high um, infection rate among deer in those particular months. Right. And I, I like the graph in your paper that kind of sh shows the, the epidemic curve for, for humans and the case positivity in, in deer kind of, they rose kind of together. Um, that's what it looked like. I have a question about the, was it the same variants? Was it like the same um, variant that was predominant in humans that you were also seeing in the deer? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that is the, the, the strength of our study is that uh, after we detected the viral nucleic acid in the deer samples, what we then did is to um, sequence the whole genome of uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus in each of those samples, total of 94. And then we were also able to obtain the whole genomes of SARS-CoV-2 from human cases from Iowa, uh, around the same locations at the same time. And then we were able to do a, a robust uh, genomic comparison between what was happening or what was circulating in, in humans and what we were finding in the deer. So based on the comparative genomic analysis, we, um, we show that what uh, the type of lineages that were predominantly circulating in people were also precisely what we also found in the deer. That's really interesting. And 
you touched on this a little bit, um, but what are some of the most common ways that you, you think that deer would come in contact with humans to pick up the virus? Yeah, that's a very interesting question that we have we've been wondering and, and lots of people have asked us. Uh, um, um, so since it's a retrospective study, um, the uh, the uh, the precise way in which they may have been infected is simply um, impossible to determine because the what we got is the samples of uh, tissues that were collected and, and stored in the freezer. Uh, but I think based on the scientific uh, information that is available to us at this point, we could make a reasonable uh, hypothesis of how this could happen. Um, and um, it, it probably may not necessarily require a human being or a, a group of people to have direct contact with, uh, with the deer all the time. Uh, but since these animals are highly susceptible, um, uh, as we know from experimental studies, there are lots of different ways in which uh, a virus from humans could uh, find its way into, into the deer um, uh, by simply sharing the same um, space. So for example, there could be a number of different ways in which uh, this can happen. For example, if somebody bites an apple and, and throws into the, their backyard, or people trying to feed the deer in their backyard, or mm. leftover food, for example, or you know, um, uh, somebody uh, spitting. Um, so all of those different um, activities would make uh, the virus available in the environment. And when the deer come to that kind of locations and, and try to eat or lick the surface, and they will pick up the virus. Interesting, interesting. I mean, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so that does happen. People do throw food in the backyard that, you know, you know their leftovers and stuff, and uh, you could see um, deer eating it. Um, so, I mean, when I went to public health school, my one of my research projects dealt with emerging infectious diseases. So I'm familiar with the term, you know, zoonotic. You guys use the term in your paper, reverse zoonotic spillover. I was wondering if you could explain what that means in, in simple terms to people. Yeah, so um, what, what we need to understand is that a, a zoonotic disease uh, essentially um, emerges from animals and, and spills over into human beings. And we have lots and lots of examples of such diseases. So for example, rabies is a classical example of a zoonotic disease that um, has an animal reservoir and, and people get infected. Um, so um, the idea is that uh, for a zoonotic disease, uh, which uh, emerged from an animal reservoir and spilled over into human population, the natural um, uh, possibilities are that when, when the conditions are right, then the, the virus can then spill back into animals. Um, and that's sort of the, the concept of reverse zoonosis. Um, so in this case, the, the hypothesis is that the virus, the SARS coronavirus 2 um, emerged uh, from a bat um, origin and then subsequently it spilled over into human population and currently circulating in, in among people. And then uh, this observation that um, the virus that is circulating in people um, through a spillover from animal reservoir into human beings is now uh, spilled back into, into deer. 
So that is kind of the reverse zoonosis, and which is the characteristic of uh, zoonotic infectious diseases. And, and this, this observation, I think, further supports the hypothesis that this virus is, is probably uh, a, a zoonotic virus that emerged from a wild um, reservoir. Mm, interesting. And um, were, are the deers just serving as reservoirs? I, or did, I don't know if you guys looked into this, did you see, are there any symptoms that they express if they get infected? Yeah, the, 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 um, there are lots of unknowns uh, at this stage. Um, so with regards to the, the outcome of infection in the deer, there are now um, two separate experimental studies that were conducted, um, one um, by our colleagues in the USDA, the other one um, at the Kansas State University. Um, based on the two separate studies where you intentionally experimentally infect deer uh, with the virus, uh, the conclusion um, was that uh, in both of those studies, the deer experimentally infected did not show any notable clinical signs. They're largely asymptomatic. Um, and the, um, the other possibility is that while um, this is in experimental settings, uh, and, and based on our study, since we, we received only the, um, uh, the samples that were collected from road killed or hunter killed, so we, we have no idea what their clinical condition was uh, right. before they were killed. Uh, but, but we could also, um, uh, we can't rule out the possibility that when animals are um, in the natural setting, where uh, some of them could be uh, stressed or old, or they have other um, co-infections, and in that kind of conditions, which uh, have not been tested in the laboratory, right? Uh, so there is a possibility that the animals may show some clinical signs, but currently we have no idea if that is the case. Right, right, of course. Um, now, can, can you say anything about rate of transmission from your study? Yeah, so um, it, the the... The difficulty is that this was um, essentially a, a convenient sampling or an opportunistic sample that we happened to have. It was not a, a well-designed epidemiological study, so we can we can calculate some of these transmission dynamics. So currently, uh, we do not know. Uh, but what we are hoping to do is that uh, from the the sampling window of 2020-21. The Iowa DNR have um, uh, saved a total of uh, over 5,000 samples. So um, when we put out the study out, um, so people should know, is uh, after we processed 300 of those samples because the evidence by then was overwhelming. But what we're currently doing is to complete the remainder of the, the 5,000 samples so we get a better representation of uh, deer samples from across the state and which we could use to um, determine um, some of those transmission dynamics. But the other difficulty is that we also don't have um, a full or better coverage of human samples from throughout Iowa um, so that uh, a, a proper transmission um, networks or dynamics can be, can be determined. So right. I think the, the better way to do is to do more um, uh, well-designed prospective studies where uh, such questions can be, can be precisely answered. Absolutely. Um, just have two more questions here. You know, so when you're talking about uh, the transmission and that sort of thing, um, this is, uh, you're, you're presenting this idea of multiple hosts, not just humans. And it seems like, you know, we're obviously focused on human to human transmission at the moment. 
but you know, and we're all trying to get vaccinated and talking about antivirals. But what does this mean for how we manage this type of pandemic with, you know, hey, there might be multiple hosts out there. Um, what should we do? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very important question. So by now, it is clear that uh, the SARS coronavirus 2 is indeed a virus with multiple hosts. So we know um, that several animal species that were um, susceptible and, and had uh, documented cases of infection. So this includes the, the domestic dogs and cats and the farmed mink, tigers and lions in the zoo, the, what, uh, the otter and now the deer. So that makes it a lot of different hosts. So uh, the, the, um, the major um, challenge is that when a, when a virus is not just circulating in one's host species, but is potentially um, circulating in more than one host, the, the dynamics of virus evolution becomes uh, much more complicated than uh, we currently uh, understand. So what it means to the trajectory of the pandemic is that uh, on, on one hand, all of us wants to um, um, get back to a, a stage of normality and, and put this pandemic behind us. And uh, one obvious um, step towards that is to vaccinate everybody so that there are no susceptible human beings uh, for the virus to continue to circulate and evolve. But now the, the fact that uh, there could be more than one potentially natural reservoirs that the virus um, could or may already be in circulating means that um, we need to uh, get a better uh, grip on how the virus might be already changing or evolving. And once we understand what are those risks are and how the virus might be changing, then it, it gives us better information to be more proactive about how do we then now prepare to, um, to mitigate such um, consequences, for example, a, a different variant emerging from animal reservoir that could undermine the existing vaccines. Right. So what it means to the pandemic is that uh, this is clearly not uh, over yet. Um, and we have a lot more work to do um, to get to a better understanding of um, what's happening with this virus and how it might be evolving. Right, and I was, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, you can probably so at some someday vaccinate your domestic dogs and cats, but I, you know, I guess vaccination for wild animals would be difficult, and you know, um, so I guess mitigation mitigation efforts would, I guess, involve just less contact, right? Yeah, clearly, uh, I think the first step is to really understand the the various um, risks um, and then the the yeah. critical control points. And once we assess the, the risks and the mitigation can have uh, many different aspects. So certainly, as you mentioned, to minimize the risk of spillover or spillback and what are the, the ways in which we can achieve that. Uh, and, and certainly in some settings, vaccination could be an option. Uh, and I agree that um, vaccinating wild free-living animals uh, could be uh, not only feasible, but also logistically challenging. But for example, uh, that can be an option for the captive deer industry, for instance. So I think, I think uh, once we better assess the, the risk and the, the critical control points, yeah. then we'd be in a better position to determine what exactly would be the, the mitigation should include. Damn. Well, it all sounds really interesting to me, and I, I hope to stay in touch with you to uh, to keep myself up to date on this research. It's really interesting. Um, it's kind of like this 
aspect of the pandemic that we're not really thinking about at this moment. But um, it's great to hear from you. And Dr. Kuchipudi, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to do this podcast. I really appreciate it. And I learned a lot too. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. And, I, and it's been a pleasure uh, discussing with you these important questions. Thank Absolutely. You. And enjoy your holiday. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to that episode of Causes or Cures. I hope you guys stick around, subscribe. Please do share this episode. Um, and again, check out bloomingwellness.com and sign up for my newsletter. Read some of the blogs there. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Even though I don't necessarily respond to everybody, I do read everything that I get. Uh, it's just been a busy, a busy time. All right, guys. Go out there and enjoy the present moment. The present moment. All right. Bye-bye.